But before we dive in, just to let you know, there's going to be some gross stuff in the sermon today. Uh, and I'm pretty much going to be looking at my notes and reading it. So if you want, if you're new here and you're expecting, like, you know, an engaging communicator, um, you're at the right church, just the wrong week. Um, so yeah, it's going to be an atypical experience. Um, so when I was in junior high, eighth grade, Ryan and I went uh, with our youth group on a rock climbing trip in Devil's Lake. Um, and when we got there, one of the leaders, Anton, took a bunch of us boys to go get some firewood. He had these two freshly sharpened hatchets, so he cut down a tree, and then we all took turns chopping it into segments for the campfire. Um, and, you know, we had like 10, 15 swings apiece, and we're scrawny little guys, so that didn't really get us anywhere. Um, so when, I, when it was my turn, I grabbed a hatchet, and I, in my head, I counted out the swings with like, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then I stopped myself in a very real way because I totally missed the tree, and the hatchet landed in the side of my shoe. Um, which, like, freaked me out, but I didn't feel anything, so I just pulled it out, finished my chopping, uh, hung around to act like I was all right, and then eventually just decided, okay, I'm going to head back to the camp, take a look at what has happened. And I noticed on the way back that with every step from my right foot, um, my shoe bled a little bit. Uh, so I got back, um, and I found an adult who freaked out, um, and, and she, like, set me down on a bench and took off my shoe, and the sock was just already soaked in blood, um, and I was fine. It was, everything was okay. Like, I cut down to the bone pretty much, um, but I didn't <laughs> go to the hospital or get stitches because nobody was responsible back then. Um, anyway, but I was in the eighth grade and that was absolutely the manliest thing that had ever happened to me. So I needed a way to commemorate this occasion when I passed from boyhood into manhood. Um, and what I did was at the time I had this really cool one strap backpack from the gap, um, and it had a, a pocket on the strap. So I opened up that pocket, and I, I took that bloody sock and just put it in the pocket and carried it with me everywhere I went for way too long. Um, by this time, I was already in love with Ryan. She was not wanting to date me. Um, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. But anyway, I, I carried that backpack around for a long time. Like, I had it until there were so many holes in it, it barely really counted as a bag anymore. And eventually, like junior year of high school, so three years later, I got a new bag and, uh, and started transferring all my things. I took my Bible that has, it was filled with sermon notes that were actually just stick figure drawings with, like, 90s emo song lyrics about unrequited love. Um... And then my Gerber multi-tool thing that made me feel like MacGyver. And, uh, and then I opened up the, the uh, strap pocket, and I pulled out the sock, 
And I thought, is this still part of the story of Evan that like I need? Do I? Is it a good idea <laughs> for me to take this sock and transfer it to my new bag? So I did. Um, but then I immediately took it back out and like threw it away because it's a <laughs> it's a bloody totem sock. I don't need it. It's got to be part of the reason Ryan wouldn't date me. Um, and really, like nobody should have to carry around bloody rags if they don't absolutely have to. Um, anyway, I'm telling you this story because I want to talk about a very common theme in Christendom, which is blood. Uh, blood is everywhere in the Bible. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Um, so, like, it's, it's essential to the gospel. Uh, we encounter it so often that I think we're kind of inoculated to what it really means. You know, we... Uh, we take communion and, and we say that we're drinking, uh, you know, the blood of Christ, but it's really just cool, sweet grape juice. Um, and somebody might say that they've been washed in the blood of the lamb, but, I mean, they mean they're saved or maybe that they've been baptized by water. But, like, if you just walked up to a stranger or somebody come up to you and they're like, hey, I'm covered in lamb's blood. Like, it, you don't really think about what that would look like. It's, it's gross. Um, but they are, they're useful practices. They're, they're good things. We just lose part of the power of the, of the symbol. Um, and I think what we have lost, and if you are taking notes this morning, I'm going to give you your, you know, your takeaway pretty early on. It's that blood is icky. Um, and so today we are going to talk about blood in probably everybody's least favorite context, which is menstrual blood. Um, yeah, so because of that, we definitely need somebody with a sense of reverence to pray. Where did Kristen go? She's our reverent one. Oh, crap. <laughs> Ryan, you want to pray for us? Yeah. Just right there. God hears it. So, like many of you, I'm not exactly excited to be up here preaching this topic or to be the person who is up here preaching on this topic. Um, I'm not really comfortable standing up here at all, much less being somebody who's like trying to mansplain a biological process that I will never experience. Um, I don't really think that I'm worthy to talk about this, but I do know that God can take our unworthiness and do something amazing with it. So, you know, this is going to be amazing. Um, I, and I definitely see myself in the woman who's in this passage, and I think you will, too, because um, this, 
this is a microcosm of the gospel, and it's absolutely beautiful. So let's jump in. Um, Alicia, will you read Mark chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, please? Sure will. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Thank you. Um, so I'm a, I'm a really easily distracted person, and there are elements of this passage that get me off track pretty quickly. Firstly, all throughout the story, we're confronted with what looks like religiously sanctioned misogyny. Um, I believe that we as Christians have a responsibility to wrestle with this issue, and I would appreciate anyone who wants to join me in struggling toward proper thought, speech, and action regarding the tricky relationship between the church, our faith, and misogyny. Uh, But speaking of misogyny, the fact that we know this woman's illness, ailment, (laughs) and not her name, uh... It says a lot. It's, it's very cruelly fitting. Uh, chronic bleeding would have defined her life and presaged her death. Uh, first of the obvious problems, I did a little bit of uh, medical history research, and I learned that one of the symptoms of chronic bleeding is chronic bleeding. Um, and, and well, we have to remember that uh, you know, like, we're talking about how blood is icky, but it's also important to remember that blood is precious. This is her life. Um, and <laughs> we didn't have uh, medical technology and knowledge that we have today. Um, like, the doctors of her day didn't know anything about blood types or transfusions or sanitation or science. Um, They had ideas, like, let's see if I can get some of these up here. Oh. Well, that's not. Oh, thanks. Okay. There we go. So you could drink a wine containing the powder of rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Seems like a good idea. Or, uh, or what if you, like, ate some onions cooked in wine while the doctor is, like, out from your blood flow? Um, yeah. Uh, you could carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a certain cloth. Um, they don't specify how certain the cloth has to be. Um, or, because, you know, hemorrhaging is like the hiccups, a sudden surprise to stop your blood from flowing, which I'm pretty sure that we have since learned that when you're surprised so much that your blood stops moving, it means you're dead. Um, and yeah, I can I can just I can imagine her, you know she has this team of diagnosticians she's uh, diagnosticians she's she's uh, you know paid she's just poured all of her money in trying to get better. And she's got doctors who are like, you know, patient presents with over a decade of chronic bleeding. When asked, she said that she's never eaten red meat while maintaining eye contact with a goat. So if that's what lupus is, it's it's not lupus. Um, My guess is that her mother laughed at a body joke while she was pregnant with her. 
and and this is her condition now. Uh, treatment might be, you know, tie a live chicken around her thigh until she or it dies. Um, but seriously, this is a, a painful and dangerous medical condition in its own right. Uh, much less with the help of, of physicians. Uh, but for a woman in this time and culture, it had deeper implications. She, since she was as unclean, seen as unclean, she would have been isolated from her family and her community. Um, and it's, that's a, a pretty depressing thought. Um, but it is something that comes from the Bible. Um, Leviticus 15 says, When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, give or take, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean, and anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Whether it is the bed or anything she was sitting on, when anyone touches it, they will be unclean till evening. Mind you, that is the attitude toward a woman with a regular, totally natural menstrual cycle. Leviticus goes into painful detail to drive home this idea that a woman on her period would be unclean and would make you unclean if you touched her. And this woman was bleeding for 12 years. What do you think this kind of treatment over that kind of time would have you believing about yourself? I don't want to be flippant about God's word. I know that the passages like this one in Leviticus are intended to emphasize God's holiness. But we have millennia of evidence showing that men have a tendency to take their focus off God's holiness and instead misinterpret these kinds of pages to say that there's something wrong with or inferior about women. A man rages against a woman because he's angry that he is less than God. So he must believe that she is less than him. This is why we need Christ's redemptive love. God's word is perfect, but we are far from it. Back to, back to this woman. If, if she were to have physical contact with anyone else, they would also be considered unclean. Even worse, this would have distanced her from God, since her uncleanness would have made her unfit for temple worship and unable to have a priest offer an atonement sacrifice for the sins that she commits as she goes about her life. She is, after all, a human being. The ultimate separation... This ultimate separation is what led her to spend everything she had on failed attempts to become clean again, to become part of the community again, and not be seen as just a burden. So she exhausted all of her wealth. She tried every seemingly logical treatment she could afford, and they all failed. In fact, they only made things worse. She was still in pain and danger. She was still alone. And she was still unclean. But let's step back a minute. There's an obvious question that needs to be answered. Why are we looking at her story today? What does any of this mean to you and me? This woman had an affliction that separated her from God and community. It wasn't her fault, but it was her burden. 
We're talking about a culture with customs so different from ours that it's easy to feel removed from her situation. But the truth is, some of us here today may be dealing with something similar and may be similarly rejected by our community. The church has a terrible track record responding to those struggling with depression, for example. If you experience depression, you're likely to be told that you just need to find your hope in Jesus, and that kind of misunderstanding and oversimplification can just make Jesus feel all the more distant. So the church does have a special knack for pushing people away and pushing them away from God. The sad truth leads us to a tension here that we need to address, and it makes me uncomfortable. This woman's affliction is also a stand-in for all of our sin. Even though her problem was not a sin problem, the separating effect it had on her is the same thing that sin does to all of us. Our sin is what makes us unclean. I don't like the comparison, but it's here. Before we reject this lesson because it's icky, let's struggle through it together because it's also precious. If we look at the next few verses, we'll see that this story is a story of incredible faith. Um, Alicia, will you read verses uh, 27 through 29, please? When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Hmm. Okay, I said I'm an easily distracted person, and there's there's some other things that distract me here. Like, just touch his cloak, and you'll be healed. Why? Why? Why is that a thing? How did she get there? It's like me saying, if I can just like honk Bob Dylan's nose, I won't have flat feet anymore. It's not a plan, and part of me hates the fact that it worked. But it did work, and it didn't make sense, and it's gorgeous, and that is the gospel. Everything and everyone else had failed her, then someone told her about Jesus. She knew that even if she could keep living with this affliction, it was no real life. So in faith, she reached out and took hold of him. That, that sounds like the gospel to me. Um, what's really amazing to me is that if Jesus had only been a man, all she would have done was spread her uncleanness to him, according to Leviticus 15. Technically speaking, she might have been breaking the law, or at the very least, it would have been considered wrong for her to knowingly defile another person, even if he never knew. Especially considering that earlier in this chapter, it says of Jesus that there were several other people pressed around him, which would have meant that hundreds of others were pressed around her, too. But because Jesus is who he is, he took her affliction and impurity from her, healed her, freed her from her suffering, and gave her his righteousness. And that is the gospel. The woman had a peculiar advantage over most of us. She knew exactly what was wrong. She recognized the stakes, and she knew only Christ could heal her. 
I have habitual sins that that I feel the need to hide. And ultimately, I know that I'll be forgiven for these sins. But meanwhile, they affect my character and my family and others around me. My laziness and procrastination hurts Ryan and the people with whom I work and you guys right now because, really, I wrote most of this last night. Um, And when I try to hide or ignore the problem, laziness mixes with guilt, breeding more laziness and more guilt, and it causes me to spiral and take others down with me, and my uncleanness spreads. I know I'm not alone in this. I just convince myself that I am. So ask yourself, what is in your life that's hurting you and those you love? Are you hiding it or doing something about it? We often have the luxury of being able to lie to ourselves and believe that we're not slowly bleeding out. It's easier. But once again, the woman in this passage offers a strong example to follow. Alicia, could you read uh, verses 30 through 33? At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Hmm. Okay, so there's another distraction here because... Jesus felt power go out of him. Just makes him sound like a Jedi, and it's really weird, and I would rant about it, but that's just a distraction. We may be able to agree that Jesus voluntarily gave up certain aspects of his full power when he humbled himself by taking the form of a man. And perhaps omniscience was part of that sacrifice, but... Since I can't find any other examples of God doing or saying anything for just one reason, I have to ask, was this not maybe just to satisfy his curiosity? Could it have been actually an invitation? Because when power goes out from Jesus... That means God is doing a good work and someone has a story to share. But it is terrifying. The woman knew that she had been unclean. She knew she wasn't supposed to touch anyone and make them unclean. And she knew that she had just broken that rule in a big way. Now here's Jesus inviting her to admit to what she had done. I know it's hard to imagine, but back in olden times... Some women weren't totally treated fairly and were sometimes punished unjustly. Um, and, And here she is. She already has a strike against her just because she's a woman. And another because she is an unclean outcast. And to make her offense worse, it was against a, a popular rabbi who was a man. If she wasn't in danger before, she definitely was now. But she was healed. She had experienced his power. 
She had to respond to his authority because simply by being who he is, he had done what no one else could do for her. And so terrifying as it was, in front of all who could see or hear, she told him the whole truth. And I love that the Bible says that, the whole truth. Something that I really, something I think about a lot when when reading through this is, um, it makes me think about where we are now as a society. Like, ladies, you're, you're no longer told to go sit in a tent for a week every month. But women, you know, it's not because women stopped having periods. We know it happens, we just don't like to talk about it. And that's how we've evolved. We men just kind of pretend it isn't something most of the women we know go through on the reg. Reg. <clears throat> Regular. Um, except in cases where it affects us, and then we might nervously joke about it, like on the reg. I'll never experience menstruation myself, but that doesn't mean it isn't part of the human experience. And ladies, I'm also not saying that I wish you would tell me more about your periods, and I'm not saying that Echo should be the church that replaces the question, how's your walk with how's your flow? Although, I hate the first one. Um, I'm just saying that we still live in a society that stigmatizes something that half of us experience as a matter of course, and we're just averse to the whole truth. Um, I don't like making the comparison, but it's laid out for us that we all have weaknesses. We all have things that make us unclean, and we don't want others to know. I know that Jesus can purify me, but ideally that would be something just between him and me, and nobody needs to know. Of course, Jesus invited her to be honest about what she had gone through and what she had done. Not to accuse or punish, although in that setting it would have been his right, but instead he was giving her the opportunity to boast in her weakness, as uh, 2 Corinthians 12 talks about, in order to point others to his strength. Let's look at the the last verse, uh, verse 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Thank you. Jesus invited her to share with the crowd her account of his redemptive power. In her suffering, impurity, isolation, and unworthiness, one bold act of faith, and by his power she was made well and pure, worthy and welcomed. We all need Christ, or else we wouldn't be Christians. We all have sins that cause us harm. Usually we either try to hide it and let it eat away at us until we feel dead inside, or we carry it on our own shoulders and let the shame weigh us down, holding us in place. But Jesus extends the same invitation to you and me to be honest about our weakness in order that we may be changed by him and help each other with our burdens. I said that I see myself in this nameless woman. More accurately, I see myself in her lowered state. I pray that one day, or at least some days, I can see myself in her bold faith and brave honesty. If I can stop pretending that I'm a better Christian than I really am, 
how much more likely am I to be inviting to those on the outside looking in who feel isolated by their impurity? When we as Christians recognize and confess our own unworthiness, it opens us up to Christ's transformative power to make us and our families and our friends and our enemies pure and worthy. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take communion. And I know there's another distraction right there, uh, thinking about what the cup represents in light of what we've been talking about. But let's just acknowledge that distraction. Um, it is icky, and it is precious. We can meditate on the amazing difference between the blood that defiles and the blood that washes. Give it to God and see what he'll give you in return. Um, I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you that that is over. You are amazing. We are unworthy, but you make us worthy. Thank you for your transformative power. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us one another. Um, I just, I pray that, uh, that your spirit would convict us to be honest and gentle, to get messy and to work toward righteousness. In your name we pray. Amen.